Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Hey friends, we're going to be talking about lifting our eyes to the hills and about uh, turning our eyes upon Jesus. But uh, before we do that, I have a question I'd like to ask you. Well, first of all, let me say, are, are any of you preparing to travel somewhere this summer? Are you, are you looking forward to some sort of a trip? It could be a business trip. It could be some sort of vacation. It could be anything. So it doesn't make any difference what you're going to do because the question I'm going to ask now is going to apply. So my question is, how do you prepare for a journey or how do you prepare for a trip? Now, believe it or not, this is a highly individualized question because there are many different styles of preparing to travel. And the reason I know that is because if you just look at the two people who now live under my roof, the styles of those two people, that being Debbie and me, they are dramatically different. Now, this shouldn't come as a shock to you because we are very different people and we always have been. As long as I can remember, Debbie's always been way ahead of the game well-prepared. She's the kind of person who makes checklists and checks them twice. She is the sort of person who has a plan for the day, a plan of action, and is disappointed if she doesn't check every box. She's that kind of person who really thinks ahead about things. And when we were in school, which is where we met, uh, when we were in college, she would always be way ahead in her preparation for any given thing or a test or a paper or something like that. And, and, and no matter how long ahead I started, I'd always be right up to the last minute getting it done. That's just the nature of my personality. It's tended to work okay for me, especially as I've gotten better through the years. I've learned to be a little more ahead and a little more prepared. I used to be late everywhere I went. Now I'm almost never late. So I, I am teachable. I am educable. I can move in a different direction. And I like to think that I've helped Debbie loosen up a little too. You know, not everyone can be in control of everything all the time. Things aren't always predictable and, and some things change. But when it comes to planning for a trip, we are still remarkably different. Let's say that we were preparing to go on a long journey. Let's say we were leaving, I don't know, this week. Maybe, maybe we're leaving like Wednesday, I don't know. That would, it could be any time, but let's say that it's like halfway through the week. And let's just say that we have to be prepared to board a plane or something like that. And so, you know, we can get out of the way the conversation about when to get there. Debbie would like to be at the airport four hours before the flight leaves, and 40 minutes is fine with me. So we can get that one out of the way. But how will we be prepared when we arrive at, at our beginning point of the journey? How will that happen? Well, Debbie will have started weeks, weeks, maybe even a month in advance. She will have made a list of every single thing that she needs. She will have thought through what she will wear every given day and laid out those clothes in little piles of what will be worn on particular days. She'll make sure that she has everything well in advance and then, I don't know, two weeks before, she'll start to actually roll the clothes and put them in the bag because no matter where we go or how long we go, we do not check luggage. We always just carry one little bag a piece. So it has to be very carefully thought out, very compactly put together. And so she will have begun that process. 
If we were traveling this coming week, by now the suitcase would be closed. You might add something, but it's all ready to go, so much so that everything in it is permanently wrinkled. That's my opinion anyway, but that's, that's what she will have, have done. And I just want to ask you to guess, and, and maybe there's someone out there like me, so you'll be able to say, if, if I were leaving on Wednesday, which is what I think I said, midweek, let's say that were the case, when would I pack? Wednesday morning. That's right. That's right. It's actually not exactly true. I will have started when I go to bed on Tuesday night. Now, listen to my methodology because it works. I just want to tell you that when we get there, I'm just as likely not to have forgotten anything as she has. I'm, I'm telling you, all through the years, this has been a pretty dependable method for me. I will not even think about this process until sometime on Tuesday afternoon. It will occur to me, well, you know, I probably ought to start think about, thinking about packing. And at that time, I might think, well, how are the temperatures going to be? Is it going to rain? What will I need, etc.? So I might have put a little forethought into the process. But that night when I go to bed, <clears throat> whenever I use, I'll pack something identical to it. So what I wear to bed, well, I'll need some of that. So I don't know how much because you don't need, but you, know, you, you put some of that in. And then, you know, you brush your teeth, or at least I do, before I go to bed. So I hope you do too. And uh, so then you need those things. And I think about the toiletries that I need then, et cetera, start to pack those. The next morning I'll get up and while I'm getting ready for the day, I'll, I'll find everything that I'm going to need on any given day. Well, I washed and I used a bar of soap. Aren't you glad to know that's the case? I'll need that. I use deodorant. Thank you, Jim. I, use, I need that. Everything I use, I'll throw in, and then I'll think, now, is there anything that wouldn't have been accommodated in this process? And by the time we go, I'll, I'll be gone. Now, that for me tends to work well. <laughs> I don't need but so much preparation to travel. If I've got the appropriate tickets, I've got the appropriate accommodations, if I know where I'm going, what I'm going to be doing, I don't need but so much time to do this kind of preparation. But when it comes to the most important things in my life, some preparation is more necessary. If I'm going to teach the Word of God, I'm going to be prepared. That's going to start well in advance. I hope you can tell that. I will have thought it through a long time, and I'll be working on it for a long time before I get to a moment like this. I want it to look effortless to you, but it's not. There's a lot of preparation involved. So the more effortless it looks, the more I am prepared when I step here. <coughs> and when I prepare to worship, to be in the house of God, in the presence of God, in the presence of God's people. Some preparation really does matter. And that's what we're going to be looking at as through the summer we look at what are called the Psalms of Ascent. Now maybe you have and maybe you have not recognized that there is a section of the Psaltery, the book of songs, that was meant to be sung on particular occasions. And these Psalms of Ascent are, are magnificent things of beauty. Some of the most famous Psalms in all of the Psaltery are in this particular section. You might have known it, you might not have. But this section is laid out for a particular reason. And this, it seems to me, is a great way to spend our summer. So I want you to think with me. I want you to sing 
with me if you can find the tune. I'd like you to pray with me and read with me through the Psalms of Ascent, and not only with me, but with my colleagues who will also be on this platform prompting you. And from now through August, let's think about what it takes to actually prepare to worship. Now, we've talked about worship before and what it contains, entails, what it means to sing hallelujah. And by the way, whenever you sing hallelujah, your hands should be in the air. That's, that's the prompt. What it means to clap, what it means to offer yourself fully. We've talked about that, but we, we've never, that I can remember, talked about being ready to do that, prepared to do that. These psalms will help us to prepare for worship wherever we do it, but especially here. Let me teach you a little bit about these psalms because they're rather fascinating. A few of them are ascribed to David. Some of them are unascribed. Those that are ascribed to David might have been written by David. Some of them very likely were. Some of them might have been ascribed by someone else to the court of David. Whatever the case, there are multiple people that contributed to these. They weren't written together, but they were compiled together, placed together for a particular reason. So we're thinking about why do these fall as they fall in the canon of the Hebrew Scripture. So you need to know that these psalms are Numbers 120 through 134, 15 songs, 15 psalms to be used in preparation for worship. They are also known as pilgrim songs. Now you may ask, why would we call these Psalms of Ascent, the pilgrim songs, and the answer is these 15 songs were meant to be sung as someone was traveling to the temple for worship because in Jesus' day, even in David and Solomon's day, this is what people did. Now, by Jesus' day, people went to the synagogue through the week. So the synagogue was more like what you know as, as church today. In fact, the model for church probably is, is more synagogue than anything else. But the temple is where God was thought to be. I mean, if you wanted to be in God's presence, you went to the temple. Not that He wasn't with you all the time, but that you were more aware of His presence. And so on the high holy days, no matter where you lived across the Holy Land, you made pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount, up the steps, into the outer courts of the temple, and you entered the presence of God and God's people. There were times in your life where this needed to be done too. Maybe you needed to sanctify a child or or a marriage. Perhaps you needed to receive atonement for something. There were many occasions in people's lives where they made their way to the temple for particular purposes. In every case, there was a journey involved. Even if you lived in Jerusalem, you walked up the temple mount, up the temple steps into the temple. But most people came from much farther away than that. So these are the pilgrim songs, the songs sung while making pilgrimage to worship. Thirdly, you should know that they were sung while going to the temple, sung while going to the temple. They weren't spoken. They weren't chanted. They were sung. I wish we had the tunes. Could you find these for me, Adam? It would be really, really, I tell you what, Adam, make some up, if you would, please. Wouldn't it be cool if we could sing these? Somehow lost, because we didn't have note to put in these books, are these these traditional songs that were sung. Now, the Jewish people still sing these, but they're, they're almost positive the tunes they use now are only like the ones that existed in the day of David, the ones David may have played on a lyre. We don't have those anymore. These are the thoughts, the honest thoughts, the hopes, 
the magnificent hopes, and the prayers, the deep solemn prayers of God's people as they are preparing to be in God's presence. This is what they're feeling. This is what they're thinking. And this is what it takes for them to be prepared to be in the presence of God and God's people. These are songs used to prepare for worship. Now, I want you to have a picture of what that road looks like. If you were to go to the Holy Land with me today, and some of you who were there will recognize this, your journey into Jerusalem will look much like your journey into Washington, D.C. or any other big city. Because now, in the last 15, 16 years, there has been a major highway that leads into Jerusalem. It has everything in common with the highway you ride on. It is absolutely cramped with traffic. You will inch your way along bit by bit and piece by piece. What will make it look a little different than anything you experience on 95 or 66 or something like that is that you'll see a gigantic fence electrified along the side of the road, razor wire on top, and that's what separates the occupied territory from what is is Jerusalem or Israel proper. You'll see that all along the road, and that will be the thing that might catch your attention. You won't even notice that you're suddenly beginning to ascend, except that if I'm with you, I will stand. I will take a mic and I will say to you, friends, we have begun our ascent into the holy city. In just a few moments, you will look off to your left and you will see David's old city. It will be right, it just springs on you all of a sudden. And I begin to read, as, as those traveling with me are my witness, I begin to read the Psalms of ascent. Let us prepare ourselves to be near the temple, to be in the city of David. It was much more dramatic, though, in the old days. Oh, man, am I old enough to talk about the old days? Apparently so. My first couple of journeys to the Holy Land involved a very different feeling trip into David's city, along the road that is actually called the Pilgrim's road, and I'll show you why in a minute. It was a long, winding mountain road that wound around the edge of the mountain on two lanes. And because you're often in a bus with a bunch of fellow pilgrims, you feel like you really will literally go off the edge. In fact, when you look out the side bus window, if you remember this, maybe some of you went in those days, you can't see any road at all. All you see is down, and you know you don't want to be there. So it's kind of a frightening arduous journey. The reason the major highways were built, in fact, is because of the number of accidents that happened on this particular highway. But, oh my goodness, how dramatic. You would wind your way up into the hills and suddenly come to the crest of one and look toward another, and there you would see the temple in David's city. And that's when I would read the Psalms of Ascent. And that old ancient road, you can see the road in the, in the background there on the right, is right beside the excavated portion of what's called the Pilgrim's Road. This is where people would walk or ride a donkey or, or whatever they rode as they came into David's city and they made their way to the temple. It was a dangerous road. There were thieves and 
robbers all along the way, people hawking goods of every sort. There were all sorts of things that happened along the way which we see recorded in some parts of history. And, and it was a hard climb. It was an arduous climb. It was a stony, rocky path. And an injury wasn't unlikely in this place. In fact, if you came from far enough, you would literally pass through what David called the valley of the shadow of death as you made your way to the temple on that old, that old road. So, that's the road you think of as you think of making your way to worship. And as I ask you, how do you prepare to worship God? Now, this might not be that much different than the last question, because a certain type of personality may really go at it with gusto. But all of us need to think about how we prepare to be in the presence of the one true living God. How we prepare to bring our minds, our hearts to God. How we prepare to worship Him in spirit and in truth. How we prepare to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How we prepare to be reoriented so we can love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We need to give this more thought. In Jesus' day, the Sabbath was Saturday, and the Lord's day was Sunday after He was resurrected. So when the church worshiped, they worshiped on Sunday morning having rested all day Saturday. Is that what your life is like? Or are you more likely to have run the thousand errands, gotten a bunch of things done, taken your kids to soccer, whatever it is that you do on a particular Saturday, been exhausted, gone to bed late Saturday night, found yourself exhausted on Sunday morning, need a second cup of coffee. People get into fights like nobody's business on Sunday morning. Am I right? It is harder than anything. How is it so hard to get to church on Sunday morning? It's harder than getting to work on a weekday. It's just, it's just a whole different ball game. And you may find yourself hurried and harried with a headache as you walk into worship. You may find yourself frazzled. But what, if, what if you were to turn in a little earlier on Saturday night? Before you went to bed, you read Scripture. Maybe the Scripture the pastor is using the next day, which is always available online. These notes are always there posted for you, I think, on Thursday. They're always there. What if you prayed? What if you meditated? What if you stilled and calmed your mind? What if you asked God to give you a different perspective as you walked into worship? What if you sang a few songs appropriate for the task? That's what the pilgrims did as they made their way to the temple for worship. Now, here's what's intriguing. They're laid out in a strange kind of a way, and I, I can't tell you I ever noticed this before. See, one way to preach these would be if we just took one per Sunday. And in fact, next week there is just going to be one. But, but most weeks there'll be a couplet, two that are paired together. And this week in particular, I, I find that interesting. Now, that's for two reasons. One is so we can get them all done through the summer. But the other is, as I read them, I recognized the way that the person who put them together, the persons who put them together in the Hebrew canon, meant for them to flow. How, how one of them sort of interestingly winds into another. How often two of them coupled together are about the same thing, or as you'll see today, two of them are about radically different things. But clearly, you can see the transition from the one to the other. And the ones we see today, Psalms 120 and 121, are a fascinating introduction to this portion of the psaltery, the songs of ascent, the pilgrim songs. And the reason they are is that had I put them together, I never would have started with 120. Not in a thousand years, 
If you ask me to do it, I might have started with 121. How many of you know Psalm 121? Do you know it? A few of you do. The rest of you are going, uh, hmm, not sure. Psalm 121. Let me see. I bet you know it. I bet you know it and don't know you know it. Okay? I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Did you know it once I mentioned it to you? You just didn't know it by number. This psalm actually has a name. Its name is the Psalm of Assurance. It's ascribed to David. This particular psalm has a place in our history. I cannot count the number of times I have read it at funerals or gravesides. It is one of the favorite psalms in all of the Bible. It ranks almost up there with Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm. It is absolutely famous, as famous as the one you'll study next week. It's an amazing psalm. This is where I'd start. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's exactly what I want to read before I walk into worship, but... But the Psalms of Ascent, this section to be sung, preparing for worship, doesn't begin with Psalm 120. It begins with 121. It begins with 120, a psalm with no name, a psalm unremembered by almost anyone. If I ask you, what does Psalm 120 say? You can't tell me. I'm positive, unless you've memorized the whole Bible. You cannot tell me what Psalm 120 says. I've never preached it. Nobody ever preaches it. It's rarely read in public because it's a real downer. That's why. Why do you begin with this? This is the kind of thing, if we sang this at the beginning of worship, I'd get a hundred emails from people going, what's wrong with you? What were you thinking? But this is how the preparation begins. Take a look. I call on the Lord in my distress, and He answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and deceitful tongues. What will He do to you? And what more besides, you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Can you please tell me what that particular section is? Well, it's a curse. It's a curse. Now, the first is obvious. Look, may you be shot with arrows from a warrior. Not a friendly thing to tell someone. I think you'll agree with me. I, I've heard you say worse, but, you know. but the burning coal thing is awesome. So how many of you have a real or used to have a real fire-burning wood place, right, fireplace? Or you do a fire pit, and you've got the little broom that's always made of something that melts. I've never figured that out. But anyway, you've got the little broom. It used to be made of some sort of, you know, husks that were taken from some sort of plant in the old days, and some of them still are. And so when a coal pops out of the fire, what do you do? You, you pick that up, and you you sweep it back in. you got to do it quick so you don't burn up the broom. So you sweep it back in. And so what you're saying is, Cole, go back to the hot place you came from. And what this person is saying is, may you who have come out of hell go right back into it. In other words, this is saying, burn in hell, you deceitful, sorry individual. 
Now, what happened? This person's had a bad week. They happened, am I right? Work didn't go well. He had a fight with his wife before he left the house. She might still be with him. I don't know. The kids weren't behaving. Nothing went well. Not only that, but world events were horrific. Everything seemed to be falling apart. The economy was bad. Business was in the tank. Everything was awful. It was a terrible week. Just like many of us have sometimes before we come into the house of the Lord to worship. Not only that, but on his way, he made a lane change on his donkey that did not please the camel driver who was behind him. And the camel driver spit and shook his fist, and he turned around and said, burn in hell! That's what it says. Don't you love the honesty of the Old Testament? Do any of you agree with me? I love the honesty of the whole Bible, but the Old Testament sometimes just lays it out there, man. It's just there like it really is. It's not prettied up. It's not cleaned up. And here's a song that I'm supposed to sing on the way to worship. May burning arrows pierce deceitful people. May they all burn in hell. That's right? Psalm 120. That's it. Now, I'm not going to ask you to confess if you did this on the drive-in. Because some of you know you did. Okay, so here's, here's what happens. It's not over, though, because it doesn't get any better. It's not like, you know, this has no happy ending. I mean, it, it just it gets no better. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Now, listen, let me tell you. This person is a resident of Israel, and they are nowhere near either Meshach or Kedar, one in one direction and one in the other. These are historical places where the greatest miscreants in history lived. It's where, it's where the biggest idiots in history lived. It's where, it's where the people you despise lived. It's where the most deceitful people of all lived, the biggest liars ever lived. These are places you wouldn't want to be caught dead, and they're in opposite directions, so this is hyperbole. They're saying, my land is no better than you fill in the blank with whatever it is, West Virginia or wherever it is that you say, okay? So, sorry, I, I apologize, people from West Virginia. I, don't, I didn't mean that, okay? I didn't mean that. I meant Maryland. Okay, so, <laughs> so whatever you say, whatever place you think of, it's the worst ever. That's what this person says. They're like strangers in their own land, sojourners walking through a land they do not recognize anymore. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they speak of war. The literal Hebrew word here means hostility. Can mean war. It can just mean hostility of other sorts. And just let me ask you, of late, who of us have not felt like this? The world's fallen apart. <laughs> it always has been. This fallen, broken world is coming apart at the seams. And this is what the psalmist says. Doesn't this seem like a great psalm to prepare for worship? An awesome thing to sing as I'm thinking about being in the presence of God. As I read this, I said out loud, I said, Lord, 
Why Psalm 120? Why this at the beginning? And I think by the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer, I got an answer. And the answer I got is because before you really are ready to worship me, this is who you are. You notice, don't you, that the psalmist doesn't say that their tongue is deceitful. Oh, no. Or that they are liars. They don't identify themselves as part of the problem. The psalmist identifies everyone else because that's what we do when we're in a terrible mood. That's what we do. It's everyone else and it's not me. The psalmist is looking around and saying, I don't belong here. I'm better than this. And I think the answer I got was, before you're ready to worship, you've got to lift your gaze from that stuff. You've got to get out of yourself. And you've got to get out of this place before you step into my presence. I think what I also got is this is honest. Now, let me suggest to you that the first step of preparing to worship is to be honest with where you really are. God can handle your honesty. What he cannot handle is deceit and lies. You can't hide from God. He knows your heart already. You may as well speak it out loud. If you're in pain, say so. If you're angry, say so. If there's unforgiveness in your heart, say so. If you want to curse everyone to hell, say so. Just lay it out there and say, Lord, this is where I am right now, and if I'm going to get to worship, I've got a pilgrimage to make. I've got a journey to take. There's some things I'm going to have to do to prepare my mind and my heart to be among people I mean to love and to worship and praise and reverence and honor and glorify you. Why Psalm 120? Why are we so often in places that look like this? This is life. This is life. Stuff happens. Things get us down. We're dragged into the valley. We experience loss and brokenness and pain and heartache and hatred that we've got to deal with. This is who we really are. And so the psalmist starts the journey. And this is the song he's singing. And if you're like me, this is sometimes the song you'd sing too, if you were honest, when you made your way to worship. Luckily, we don't stay there. We get to Psalm 121, the psalm of assurance, the one I would have used to begin this section of Scripture, but the one that the Bible does not use to begin this section of Scripture. And I suddenly noticed how the transition is made to a very different position, a very different place, and it's powerful. I hope it's as powerful for you as it is for me, but it taught me something after all these years of worshiping and all these years of leading worship. It taught me something about worship. Now, here's the thing I got to tell you before we move forward. We can do a lot about the content of worship. We work at it hard. We're really working at it hard now as we prepare to enter this new building with its massive stage, this large room, because you may not know this, but sociologically, there's one thing and one thing only that creates the expectation of the people who walk in the door for what put on, is put on the stage, and that is, Adam, the size of the room. A little room, little production is fine. 
A big room, it takes a lot to fill that stage. So we're working at that Columbia Sound. We're working for a magnificent worship experience. And let me tell you, for those of us who teach here, I don't know about everybody else, I think I do, but for me, there's a lot of time put into content preparation. So I can work on the content. We can work on the context of worship. We're spending a king ransom for a better context. You're going to love it. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be incredible. The context, it won't be beat anywhere around us. It's going to be really remarkable. But there's nothing I can do about your comportment. Content, context, I can't do anything about your comportment. When I walk in the room on Sunday morning, I pay close attention to where people are and what they seem to be thinking. I'm pretty intuitive, so I can read you. I can look at you and tell. I can look into your eyes I can look at what's on your face. I can see how you're carrying yourself. I can see how you're communicating with others. When we worship at the beginning, I always turn and look around at the crowd to see how engaged they are. You, By the way, you look pretty happy today by comparison to last week. I was glad because I've got to preach. And and the reason I look around is because that tells me how much energy it will take to do this. let Let me just tell you. When you're on top of your game, you got here on time, you got in your seat because it's an affront to God to walk into the worship during praise. You've got to be here before, praying, readying yourself to worship. And when you do that and you're actually in place and you, you've done what you need to do, you've gotten a good night's sleep, you've had something to eat this morning, you've had a couple of cups of coffee this morning, one before you got here and one when you got here, right? You've done what it takes to get yourself ready for worship physically then I can see it. When you woke up this morning and you prayed and you read Scripture before you walked in the door, I can see that. I can tell where you are. And when you, when you walked into the door still in Psalm 120, I can see that too. And here's the thing that happens. Here's what you need to know. If you walk in full of vibe and vigor, the Holy Spirit, you bring it to the room. Preaching is a breeze. I go home revived. I know that sounds strange. I may be tired, but I'm revived. But on the days when the congregation's not there, they're not ready, this takes 50 times more energy. I'm sure anybody who's up here as a prompter would say that because here's the thing. We are not the performers and you are not the audience. We are the prompters. You are the performers. And God is the audience, amen? God is the audience, amen? God is the audience, amen? What you bring to the production. You're the actors. Do you know your lines when you walk in the room? Did you prepare to act in the presence of God in a faithful way by which he is glorified? That's what the psalmist needs to do. So they get from Psalm 20 to 121. Take a look at this. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from. Now, this is what grabbed me. This particular person making pilgrimage to worship has just sung 120. They've just belted out what is often called a psalm of lament or a psalm of complaint, a bellyache. What they have done is to try to put their sin and their shame on the side of the road and empty from their packs the garbage they filled themselves with for the whole week. In our case, we hear Jesus say, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light and you will find rest for your souls. They try to lay their burden upon the Lord. This is my burden, Lord. Here it is and you hear me. They try to lay it down so they can get to this. But do you notice that Psalm 121 begins not with a statement but with a question? Okay, all this is true. The world's falling apart. Where else do you go but God? All that's true. But let me ask, where does my help come from? Answer that question with me, would you? Verse 2. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Ask yourself the question when you find yourself in a 120 spot. Where does my help come from? Why do I worship and praise and honor and glorify Him? What else is there? But the Lord, where does my help come from? It comes from the maker of heaven and earth. He knows all of this. He created all this. He controls all this. All of it's for his glory and for his good. He knows what happened to me this week. He knows my heart is not always in the right place. He knows my unforgiveness. He knows my brokenness. He knows my pain. He knows my sorrow. He knows my despair. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and of earth. Now the pilgrim's walking along the road, and the road is treacherous. If it's wet, if the pathway is wet, even more so. It's a steep ascent, a steep climb on rocky steps all the way to the temple. So the psalmist sings, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Day or night, I can count on his help. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand when the sun is beating down on that desert highway. The sun will not harm you by day, nor will the moon harm you by night. He's watching over you all the time. He never slumbers, never sleeps. He's always there with you, but now you're becoming more aware of His presence. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He'll watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and you're going both now, this is important, and what? Forevermore. What has it taken for this sorry soul preparing for worship to get to a place where he can see eternity? Where he can raise his gaze from time and everything that's happening right in front of him, and the world that's blowing apart, and all the sin, and the brokenness, and the shame, not only in his own life, but in the life of everyone else. What does it take him to get to a place where he can see, Lord, you are the maker of heaven and earth, and yours is eternity. And so you will watch over me, and you will love me for the rest of time and beyond. What does it take to get to that perspective? It takes a recognition that your only true help comes from God. He is my help. Where does my help come from? It comes from the maker of heaven and of earth. Listen, friends, the fallen world is always begging for your attention, and it always will be. This isn't going to change. You're not going to live through this season and then discover somewhere out there is this peaceful moment in your life. There'll be something else. Trust me. 
There always will be until the moment you breathe your last and you go to spend eternity with your Maker. There will always be something on your mind and your heart that is heavy. And if for a moment you forget it, the world will remind you. Something will happen to suck you back in. What does it take to be ready to worship? What does it take to be ready to glorify God and to be among God's people? What does it take to come into the presence of the maker of heaven and earth with a heart full of joy? What does it take? It takes a recognition of who we are first, where we are, and then to shift our attention to who God is. Do you see? I lift my eyes to the hills. I lift my gaze from the valley. I pull my eyes up from the road and the rocks that are in it. And I look off in the distance and I see the temple and I start to rejoice. Let me tell you what's happened here, okay? This particular pilgrim's hecklings have turned into hallelujahs and their pissing has turned into praise. And it happened because they lifted their eyes. Not too long ago, I was driving down what is now Langston Boulevard. If you don't know that, that's Langston right here. I was coming down from the hospital, from Virginia Hospital Center. And I had not made that drive in in a while, and it was not spring yet, and so the leaves were not on the trees, and everything was wide open, kind of a wide open vista. And and I was coming down in that particular direction from, from there, And I looked off in the distance. Have you seen this yet? And I could see what will be our steeple. And it's kind of amazing I could because right now it's still framed. In fact, there's something done wrong on it. It's got to be changed before it can be fixed. That's the nature of the whole project. But anyway, I could see it. Did did you know that other than a little dinky radio tower, this steeple will be the highest point in the city of Falls Church? Nothing else will actually be that close because this church is built on a hill a city that cannot be hid. Whoever chose this spot chose one of the highest points in Falls Church to begin with. I mean, there's there's all around us you can see this hill, but this steeple will be the tallest point, And, and it's not even finished yet. And I came over the crest of the hill, and I saw the steeple, and a tear just just came down my eye. And I said, Lord, I prayed right there, Lord, make me worthy of that city on a hill. Let us not be hid. My eyes were lifted. My gaze was lifted from all that was happening around me. And I became aware of what God was doing here. I became aware of you, God's people, and of what God was up to and just how magnificent it all was and how undeserving I was of the whole thing. It was a holy moment, a sacred moment for me. Have you ever been taken surprised by a moment like this? It happens to me once in a while, but this was an unusual moment. I had a lot on my mind. I lifted my gaze to the hills And I saw the God of my help in that moment. And my heart was turned to worship and praise. And that's how I want you to feel every single time you make your way here. But even before you start the journey, if we are prepared to worship, lives will be changed. And this is why we can never be greater in our worship than you expect us to be. God can never show up more than you expect Him to. God can never speak to your heart more than you anticipate He will. You've got to come saying, Lord, 
You're going to move today, and I will stand amazed. You're going to move today, and I will be changed. My perspective will be changed. My gaze will be lifted. You will move today, and lives will be changed. You'll move today, and the world will be changed through the worship of your people. That's how you got to walk into the room, because if you anticipate like that, trust me, I've seen it. Now, friends, we could be in the catacombs again, but if you had comportment like that, God would show up. Do you know that? We can be in some upper room with the door slammed and no beauty around us. And if your comportment is like that, God will show up. We could be in a garage or a tent. And if you had expectation like that, God would show up. If you're prepared, it doesn't matter how bad the content or the context Your comportment will create a moment in which God moves and God acts because God is ready to meet us when we're ready to meet Him. Do you understand that? Amen. But we can never be greater than our worshipers. We can never, ever be any greater in our praise of God than your expectation of how great together we will be. And this is what the psalmist discovers, singing my desperation and misery and then asking the question, but where does my help come from? Where does my help come from? The fallen world is begging for your attention and constantly will be, but we lift our eyes to the hills. We turn our gaze to God. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So I ask you to make this your prayer this summer and maybe even afterwards as you prepare your hearts and your minds to worship. As you come in, put a tune to it and sing it. Say it out loud, whatever. Let me hear you practice it. And until you get it right, we're going to keep going. So if you want to eat lunch, you better get it right. Here we go. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I happen to believe you can do it better than that. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. One more time as though you're actually in God's presence. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. When we know that, above all else, we are ready to praise Him. So you just read it, and and now you're ready. So turn to your neighbor and and say to them, my heckling just became a hallelujah. Just say it to them. (laughs) This part's even more fun. Turn to them and say, your pissing just became praise. (laughs) Make it so. Make it so. Come hungry. Come expectant. And come recognizing your help. He is the one we worship and honor and glorify and praise. May we be ready. May we be ready. So, Father, we pray that you would give us the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. And when our heads are hung low and our shoulders are slooping and we're stuck 
in the garbage of the world, and we would worship you, put your holy tan down under our chin, and lift our heads, and turn our eyes to the hills where we will meet, if we're prepared to do so, the maker of heaven and earth because that is who you are. Lord, help us to see ourselves for who we are and to be honest with ourselves about the despair, the brokenness, the pain, the baggage. Help us to leave it on the side of the road, to give those loads to you, and to walk into worship with our hands and our hearts open and our eyes affixed on our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, prompt us to worship you, and we will do our part. Remind us who you are, and we will prepare ourselves to meet you so that we might be transformed, reoriented, changed, inspired. Lord, thank you for being our God, not just now, but being worthy of our praise everlasting, and our love everlasting, because that's what life and eternity are really about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dear friends, together we are all new, all in, and all out. So you go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week, and I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org.